Let us pray once again before we come and hear and listen to God's Word. Father, we continue to pray that you would indeed open our eyes to who Christ is, that we, our hearts would indeed burn for him, long for him, to see his ways as good and right and beautiful. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, that we would hear what you want us to hear, what we need to hear. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. And so, by your grace, by your strength, the strength of your spirit, your servants are listening. Amen. Well, our reading this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 25 to 32. You can find the reading uh, on page 978 of your pew Bible. Ephesians 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 25. Let us now give our attention to God's good, holy, and gracious word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, to start us off, I've got a quick quiz. This will be okay for uh, those in middle school and high school since uh, exams have either come or go, so it'll be okay. Just a quick quiz, one question, okay? Here's the question. How many commands does Paul give us in the first three chapters of Ephesians? Know the answer? One. One command. Out of three chapters, 66 verses, Paul, in the first half of Ephesians, only gives us one command. And even then, it's a soft command to remember. Remember who you once were apart from Christ. Now, I mention this because here we have a stark contrast in the verses we read this morning. We're just in eight verses. Paul gives us upwards of 11 commands. Why the change? Why so many commands at this point? Well, because if you've been with us, you'll know the answer. In coming to chapter 4, we've come to the great transition point of Ephesians. Paul, in the first three chapters, has been focusing on all that God has done for us in his grace. But in coming to chapters 4 and on to the end of the letter, he's now focusing on how we're to live out that grace. Or to use the language of verse 3 of chapter 4, Paul, in the second half of Ephesians, is teaching us how we're to walk. How we're to walk in a manner worthy of God's call. Of his call to us 
to be his in Christ. And central to this worthy walk is learning to fulfill the commands of the gospel. And to do so not in order to earn or maintain God's favor, but because we've already been given God's full favor in Christ. As Paul told us back in verse 10 of chapter 2, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. And central to these good works are the good commands of the gospel. Commands such as the one that Paul spells out for us, gives to us in this passage. Now, before we go any further, I want you just to scan over these verses one more time. Just look over them. Do it quickly. And as you do, here's my question. How you doing? How you doing in following these commands with being a truth teller, with not being overrun with anger, with living generously? How are you doing with the, in the use of your words and in being kind? And before you quickly answer, keep in mind that the very first command here is a command to be honest. We're to tell the truth about ourselves about where and how we struggle personally to live the Christian life. As Christians, we may be tempted to hide our failures, but we're actually called to confess our failures, to confess them honestly. For the truth is, some of us really do struggle with lying. We may not tell outright lies, just just half-truths here or there. We fudge the truth to our own advantage or for our own self-protection, but a half-truth is still a non-truth. It's a lie. There are others of us who struggle with deep-seated anger, anger that's had a hold on us for years, anger that not only destroys our relationships, but consumes us personally. Some of us use our words to cut down others. And it's not enough, after making a cutting remark, to, to follow it up quickly with, I'm just joking. No, the damage is done. Some of us who struggle with being kind and forgiving and instead choose to live in bitterness and resentment, bitterness and resentment that we may try to hide, but we can't because that internal bitterness and resentment is all over our faces. As you look at these commands, the question that we all have to ask is, where am I struggling? And where you are, name it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't act like it's no big deal. It is a big deal. Because not following these commands is deadly. It's deadly personally and it's deadly corporately. It's deadly to our church fellowship. Where God's called us to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We can't cultivate community if we ignore or reject these commands. If we don't confess where we fail, and if we don't seek to do what God, in his grace, has called us to do as his people. Now, before we actually get to the details of this passage, here's the question. How can we even begin to follow these commands? I think if we're honest, they're a bit daunting. How can we begin to follow these commands? Well, the place to start, according to Paul, is with the mind, with having a mindset that flows out of and is therefore fitting with the gospel. Paul puts it like this in verse 3. If you would just look back up, 
We're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. As Christians, we're to be continually renewed in our thinking so that our thinking continually comes into line with who Christ is and what it means to belong to him. We could put it like this. Renewal requires that we keep certain things in mind. And the certain things that I'm having in mind here are two in particular. The first thing that we must keep in mind, always keep in mind, is who we are in Christ. My friends, if you belong to Christ, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, you have learned Christ. If you belong to Christ, Paul says you've learned Christ, which means you've learned that in coming to Christ by grace through faith in him, that, that you've put off, this is what you've learned in learning Christ, that you've put off the old humanity, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and you've put on the new humanity, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you are a Christian, you've experienced a cosmic change, a radical transformation. By nature, you were once in Adam, but now by grace, you are in Christ. In Adam, you were once dead in your sins and trespasses, but now in Christ, you've actually died to sin, which means sin no longer defines you. And therefore, it's no longer to direct you. In Adam, you were once separated from God. But now in Christ, you've been reconciled to God. You're now alive to God. And in being made alive, you're no longer enslaved to sin and death. No, you've been freed. Freed by God's grace. Freed to now follow God's command. And to do so not in order to be loved by God, but because you are loved by God in Christ. By God's saving grace, you've put off the old Adamic humanity and you have put on the new Christ humanity. And because you have, here's what's most true. Here's what's most true about you. You are now united to Christ. You are in Christ. He's in you and you are in him. And, and because you are, now think about this, because you are, all that's his, all that's his is now yours. His unlimited resources are at your disposal. The resources of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, present reign, and future return. All that's his is now yours because by grace, he's given himself for you and to you. The whole of your life and salvation is found only in one place, in Christ alone. No wonder we're told elsewhere that our hearts and our minds, our thoughts and our affections are always to be set on Christ, that the eyes of our faith are to be fixed on him, or in the words of John Calvin, since such a rich store of every kind of good abounds in Christ, let us always drink our fill from this fountain and no other. Everything you truly need is found in Christ. Do you need righteousness? Then it's found in his perfect life. Do you need forgiveness? 
then it's found in his self-sacrifice. Do you need acceptance? Then it's found in his being condemned on the cross in your place. Do you need true and abundant life? It's found in his resurrection. Do you need assurance? It's found in his love that's stronger than death. Do you need strength to fulfill these commands? Then it's found in his present reign and in the gift of his spirit. All you need, all you need to begin to fulfill these commands is found in Christ. Found in the truth that you are united to him. He's the source and the strength to walk in these commandments. Do you believe this? Maybe ask another way. Do you have an in Christ understanding of yourself? Well, the truth is we so often don't. And the reason is because we still sin. And because we do, we think the old Adamic humanity is what's most true about us. But it's not. It's not. No, what's most true is that you've put off the old in coming to Christ, learning Christ. You've put off the old, you've put on the new. The holy and righteous new humanity of Christ. And because you have, you're to learn to think accordingly. So as to live accordingly. Let me illustrate. Last week, I had the privilege of going back to my old church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. First time I've been back. For six months, having lived there for nearly 10 years, and while I was there, I found myself having to remind myself that I no longer have a home or a church in this still familiar place. It was a strange feeling. You know what would have been more strange? If I'd have pulled up to my old house and walked in as if I still lived there. I don't think the people who bought the house would have been impressed. Or if I tried to lead that church, pastor that church, as if I were still her minister. Neither is the case anymore. They're no longer true about me, no matter my feelings. I now live here. I pastor this church. Yet while in Murfreesboro, I had to remind myself of this truth. And in much the same way, we have to remind ourselves daily of who we truly are in Christ as we continue to walk in this world that's opposed to Christ. Because often, this world and its ways feel like our true home. Because once by nature, it was our true home, but it's no longer true. It's no longer the case, because our true home, our true identity, our true security, and our true calling is in Christ. We've put off the old. We've put on the new. Christ is in us, and we are in him. And because we are, we're now to walk in the world in a way that honors him. That honors him who gave up his all to have us, to have you as his own. On a daily basis, you're to remind yourself of who you are in Christ. I'd almost say every hour, every minute we have to do this. It's this truth that's to to fill our minds, flood our hearts, and form our wills that we might follow Christ more faithfully to do these commands We must remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Do you do that? Do you preach to yourself who you are, what you have, because you are in Christ? Second, to follow these commands, we have to keep in mind the process of sanctification. Yes, we've put on Christ. But as I said a moment ago, we still sin. We've died to sin, still hasn't yet died to us, which means we're still in process. We're in the process of being renewed in the image of Christ. We're still on the way. We haven't yet arrived. And because we haven't, we're called to fight. 
and even kill off our remaining corruption so as to become more and more like Jesus. We are called to sanctification. And sanctification, sanctification is not becoming something you're not. Okay, I'll say that again. Sanctification isn't becoming something you're not. No, sanctification, biblically understood, is becoming who you already are in Christ. For example, in Christ, you are forgiven. Therefore, you're to become forgiving. In Christ, you are a child of God. So live as a child of God. In Christ, you are a saint, a holy one. Therefore, walk in holiness. Become what you are in Christ. This is sanctification. And this sanctification process, in this sanctification process that we are called into, there's actually three steps, practical steps. They're the practical steps of displacement, replacement, and then knowing the reason why. Okay? Sanctification always includes the negative. The negative of displacing your sin. But we mustn't stop with the negative. If Christianity were simply a stop at faith, it'd be drudgery. We couldn't do it. There is a negative, there is a stop it, there is a displacement, but with this displacement comes replacement. What we've displaced, the sin that corrupts, is to be replaced with something better. What's the better? It's Christ and His way. That's the better. And then with this displacement and replacement comes the rationale, meaning God gives his children the reason for obedience. Now, I'm a parent. I try to give reasons, but sometimes I just say, do it, because I said so. God actually gives us the reason. He gives his children the reason for why we're to be in this process of sanctification, of our becoming more and more like Christ. That's really what sanctification is. It's a very high-sounding word, theological word. Sanctification is saying no to your sin and yes to Christ, becoming more and more like Christ because we're united to him. And we actually see this process with these steps in these verses. And what Paul gives us here, there's actually upwards again 11 commands, but really there's five main commands. And you'll notice that they are commands addressed to us as individuals. But ultimately, they're given to us for the sake of our life together as the body of Christ. Because you see, behind these five commands stands the one big command that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're to follow these commands not only because they're good for us personally, good for us individually, but because they're vital for our fellowship what it means for us to express our unity in Christ. So let's look at them. What does he say? Well, the first command Paul gives us, take these 11 and break them down into five. The first one is falsehood must be replaced with truth. Falsehood must be replaced with truth. Verse 25, therefore having put away falsehood. Falsehood was characteristic of the old humanity with its deceitful desires. And because the old humanity has been put away, when we put on Christ, each one of us, each one of us is to speak the truth with his neighbor. Falsity, in whatever form, is to be replaced with truthfulness in every fashion. And what's the motivation? What's the reason Paul gives for this? Verse 25, 
Because we're members one of another, members of the same body. I mean, imagine for a moment if your left leg started functioning in contradiction to your right leg. What would happen? You'd be falling all over the place. What would it be like if your right eye started seeing something different from your left eye? You couldn't make sense of your surroundings. We need the members of our physical body to work in tandem. Just as we need the members of this body, Christ's body, to work in truthful tandem. Falsehood, no matter the size, fractures. Falsehood, no matter the size, fractures our fellowship with one another. Falsehood is a contradiction to Christ, who himself is the truth of God. And because we belong to him and to one another in him, we're to be a people of truth. A people who resist the cancerous cells of lies, hypocrisy, and pretense. Truthfulness is to characterize our community. It's to characterize our lives individually. And it's to characterize Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. Does it? Are you, are we, speaking the truth to one another? Are we replacing falsehood with Christ-shaped truth-telling? Second command Paul gives. Consuming anger must be replaced with what we could call controlled anger. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Now, Paul, he's a realist, right? He knows that in our life together, there will be times when we find ourselves angry. Angry at one another in this fellowship, as well as angry at the leadership of this fellowship. Yet this anger mustn't be allowed to rage and get out of control. Now, it's not always wrong to be angry. Jesus got angry. God certainly gets angry. But it is out of line with Jesus for that anger to define us and consume us. And that's why Paul adds, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Anger, when it arises, must be quickly put to bed. We must seek to put it out quickly before it gets control and then gets the better of us. And it will get the better of us. Being angry at another person, you may think it affects them. It actually affects you even more. It consumes you. What's the reason Paul gives us this command? Verse 27, so that we might not give an opportunity to the devil. Satan wants nothing more than to wreak havoc in our church. Do you know that? He wants nothing more than to wreak havoc in our fellowship. And what Paul's saying is that uncontrolled and unresolved anger gives the devil a foothold to do the very thing he wants to do most, and that is rip this body apart. Therefore, in your anger, Paul says, don't sin by letting that anger consume you. Rather, confess your anger. Be clear as to the reason for your anger. Anger's arising because something even deeper is going on in your heart. Go to the person. Yes, that takes courage. Look to Christ. Go to the person and express your anger. And most of all, take your anger, continually take your anger to the cross. To the place where we see God's righteous anger against us being extinguished. 
so that we might be reconciled to him. The cross alone is the cure for our anger. So falsehood must be replaced with truth. Uncontrolled anger with controlled anger. Third, theft must be replaced by generosity. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Now, think about it. A thief does work in some sense, right? (laughs) Yet he works deceptively and selfishly to take what his hands didn't earn. But once a person's in Christ, thieving in whatever form has to go. It has to be replaced with honest work. Work not only that provides for our needs, but also, Paul says, that's able to provide for someone else who is in need. And isn't that how grace works? How God's grace works? That a heart gripped by God's grace, what does it do? It leads to a loose grip on our stuff, on our possessions and on our money. Grace produces generosity so that what we've earned through honest work We no longer cling to as a source of hope and satisfaction. Rather, we see our stuff as a gift from the Lord who actually gave us the ability to work in the first place and who calls us to be a giving people rather than a hoarding people. We belong to a generous God who's lavished his grace on us in Christ, which means his grace is the engine of our generosity of our living generously toward one another. So I'll ask you, as I ask myself, are you ready to share with those in need? Well, you won't be if God's grace is small. If you think that God has just simply given you a little grace here and there, no, in Christ, again, thinking rightly, in Christ he's lavished his grace on you. Our God isn't a hoarding God, a stingy God. He's lavishly poured his grace upon us, giving us everything that we need in Christ. Fourth, corrupting talk must be replaced by grace-filled words. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Paul actually means that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may have given grace to those who hear. Now here's a spiritual maxim. Our hearts are revealed by our words. Our hearts, what's really going on, are revealed by our words. And sadly, our words often reveal a heart that's hard toward others. A hard heart that eventually leads to harmful and cutting words. Words that corrupt. That corrupt not only the person that we're speaking to or about, but actually corrupt us. Corrupt our relationships, the very relationships that we're called to cultivate. Paul here is encouraging us to be a people who are learning to speak. We have to add in our day of social media who type and post. A people who speak and post slowly, thoughtfully, and intentionally. Most of all, I would say gospelly. That we be a people whose words are shaped by the good word of Christ that he has spoken to us. A word that doesn't tear us down, but a word that builds us up. What do your words, whether actually spoken or typed or posted, what do they reveal about your heart? Do they reveal a corrupt heart? 
captivated with self? Or do they reveal a heart that is being changed and captivated with Christ? My brothers and sisters, in light of Christ and by the strength of the Spirit, let's make it our aim to put a guard over our mouths. A guard that keeps corrupting talk from coming out of our mouths and instead a guard that actually releases good and gracious words that wisely fit the occasion. We are called to wisdom as we're going to see next week and the week after that to be wise in our words so that our words build up rather than tearing down. Words that build up to the glory of our gracious God. One final command in this section. Malice must be replaced with kindness. Verse 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as, just as, even as God in Christ forgave you. Notice the progression Paul gives us here. Bitterness in the heart giving way to uncontrolled anger, and then uncontrolled anger leading to public clamor or yelling, which was possible, public yelling at one another in the church, as well as slandering them or gossiping about them maliciously with evil intent. Paul says this way of life must be displaced so as to be replaced with what? Kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness because, and here's the reason, this is the way God's treated you in Christ. This is exactly the way God has treated you in Christ. And that's the whole point. If God has been kind to you, even when you were rejecting him, if he's been tender toward you, a hard-hearted rebel, if he's forgiven you of your sins against him, then how could we refuse not to do the same to others, especially to one another in this fellowship? Kindness is to mark our communal life. Is it? Is Fort Worth Presbyterian Church, do we have a reputation for being kind, tender, and forgiving? Being a forgiving fellowship. Let's think about it for a moment. What a beautiful church we'd be if we took these commands seriously. What a beautiful church we'd be if we rested in the power we have to fulfill these commands, the very power of Christ that comes to us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's the one who, according to verse 30, is the one who's marked us. Marked us with God's own seal of approval, a seal that declares that you are God's possession, bought with the precious blood of his son, his son who came speaking God's truth, who bore God's anger against our sin, who shared his own life with us in our need, who was torn down on the cross that we might be built up, and who revealed the tender heart of our God. A heart that led to our being forgiven, forgiven of our lies, of our uncontrolled anger, of our theft, of our corrupting talk, and our ugly bitterness. My friends, in Christ, these commandments aren't a burden. They're beautiful. 
They're a reflection of the beauty of Christ himself. And we are being called to walk in them that we might show forth the beauty of Christ. Which begs the question, do you see the beauty of Christ? Do you know the beauty of Christ? Do you see Christ as better than anything else? Do you see the beauty that by God's grace, if you trust in Jesus, you are now in Jesus. He's got you. He's with you. He's for you. And he promises to strengthen you when you walk in these commands. And we need it as a church. This wider society needs it as well. This wider society desperately needs not a correct political agenda. This society doesn't need bare morality. No, this society needs a sufficient Savior. The one you claim and are called to follow. By his grace, may we do so. May we take these commands seriously. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for the boldness of the Apostle Paul, who didn't mince his words, but for the good of that church then as well as the church today. He gave us these commands. By your grace, May we not be a foolish people who shrug them off. At the same time, may we, we be a people who are not weighed down when we see these commands, but lifted up by your grace at work in us to walk in them. And when we fail, not to hide, but to acknowledge our sin and be reassured that we are forgiven because we belong to Christ. Would these commands be cultivated in our community? So that this church would indeed more and more show forth the beauty of Christ. We pray these things for his sake. Amen.